So, <laughs> welcome back to Consistently Candid. I'm here with you, um, who is the founder of Pause AI. Um, do you want to introduce yourself, tell everyone a little bit about like how you ended up founding Pause AI and your kind of background? Oh, yeah. Hey, uh, thanks for having me, Sarah. So, I'm uh, Manisma. I am a software engineer. I have a company in Utrecht in the Netherlands. I've been working on databases and programming stuff. And I've been reading about AI and AI safety for maybe seven to eight years now. And basically when GPT-4 came out, I was starting to get really, really worried because things are accelerating and going way faster than pretty much everyone had predicted. But I think everybody who's listening in here already fully agrees with that. Um, and that to me led to a feeling that I should do something and I reached out to a bunch of people, including Otto Barter from the Existential Risk Observatory. And uh, I got in touch with uh, Johan de Kok and Alex van der Meer, a bunch of Dutch people who's also interested in AI safety and concerned about uh, AI risks. And then we started doing our first protest. We organized a protest in uh, Brussels um, well, because Sam Altman was going to speak there, right, at Microsoft uh, headquarters. He was like doing this global campaign where he's talking to all these politicians. So we thought, okay, we're going to protest there because Sam Altman is going to be there and then we're going to meet a politician. So I also reached out to the European uh, Commission and I got a meeting there and I basically said, hey, I'm very worried about X-Risk and AI. Can we have a meeting? Because right now your colleagues are talking to Sam Altman and you need to hear like this different story as well, right? So that's basically how Pause AI started. And, you know, now we have a Discord with almost a thousand people and maybe 15 protests uh, up until now, there was one last week. Yeah, it's pretty crazy to think of all the things that happened last year. Yeah, yeah, that's like really impressive. It's like crazy what one person can do just by like paying attention and putting like a little bit of effort in and you really can just like get like the ear of like really influential people. So that's really cool. Do you remember like, I guess if it was like seven or eight years ago when you first learned about this, maybe you don't remember, but do you remember like what the first like kind of argument you encountered was or like, do you remember what, like what convinced you that this was like worth worrying about? Mm -hmm. I think that was a video by uh, Nick Bostrom. It was a TED video. I was like obsessed with watching TED videos, right? Because it's like so information dense and one of the better things because back then YouTube wasn't as good. Um, anyway, I was, was watching this video about super intelligence and Nick Bostrom was basically making this argument that, you know, if we're going to make smarter and smarter systems, at some point it's going to be smarter than humans. And things that are very, very smart are very, very good at getting what they want. So if you have a machine that wants something and that something is even slightly different from what humans want, then the machine gets its way, right? Because it's smarter. And like that, that argument to me, it's so incredibly simple. It makes so much intuitive sense that I was kind of surprised that I'd never thought of it before. Um, but it took me like seven years before I heard that argument. Right after like it took me seven years after hearing that argument until I really started to feel that, holy shit, this could like actually impact our world and my life and my family and my friends. Right. So there's a whole difference. There's a big difference between understanding the argument and actually feeling that we could die because of this. Right. How, how has that been for you? Um, yeah, I guess. Well, I, I haven't been kind of in this as long. I think it was like. It must have been like summer 2023 that I first started encountering this stuff. 
Um, and I think initially I found it quite like psychologically difficult to deal with just because I was just kind of like, I was like hunting around looking for like some, I, I was looking for like a consensus like on what was actually happening. Like I thought there would be some like established group of experts that had like figured out like what was actually going on. And I was like very disconcerted to discover that there wasn't that and that like nobody knew what was happening. Um, so I found that like really destabilizing for a bit, but then eventually like, I think you just adapt to like a new level of uncertainty and it's kind of like your brain just can't be in that state of like panic like permanently so you just kind of get used to it um <laughs> i guess like it's like hedonic adaptation or whatever you yep, call yep. it so i think that's kind of happened and now i like on the day-to-day -day, i don't feel like uh emotionally negatively impacted by it even though i think about it a lot but i think it's like very useful to have a community of people that are also worried about it um yeah but it's interesting like how i think that the emotional connection like doesn't happen for most people like even people who are like in the field and like work on it and like intellectually are sold on it being a problem like a lot of them don't make that leap to like really emotionally investing in it which is kind of interesting i don't know if you like have any thoughts on why that is but <laughs> yeah that, that is fascinating right it's like there's this disconnect I think there's like a, a pop, maybe a, a, a bunch of psychological reasons. So I think firstly, it's very difficult to internalize that the thing you are working on could actually be very, very bad. Uh, you heard Joshua Bengio and Geoffrey Hinton, right? Two Turing Award AI winners who have like now become AI alarmists mostly, right? They've speak about this really, really clearly that they had like this, you know, psychological tendency not to look at it too much, not to be concerned too much um, mm -hmm. because it's so confronting. I think that is part of why there's like a lack of, lack of, you know, alarmist action in the tech scene. I also think there's this other reason that working on technology and working on AI capabilities, maybe specifically, is just way more fun. And many tech people, you know, just, just pursue like this intellectual interest of, you know, just building things. And it's very rewarding to build things, right? It's very fun to, to build things and, and work on improving things and understanding things. Uh, and the whole stuff that needs to happen in order to prevent disaster is probably not that technical, right? At least I, yeah. I do think that the alignment problem is a technical problem, but I think right now what we need is to pause, buy us some time. And in order to get there, right? In order to get that pause implemented, we don't need a technical solution. We need people to be loud. We need people to be convincing. We need people to be public. And there's like this, this culture in, you know, the whole AI safety scene that is kind of like shying away from speaking up. It, for a long time, it was like a huge taboo, right? Nobody wanted to say anything publicly because there was this, this, uh, this, this uh, idea that if you talk about AI safety and you talk about the dangers of AI publicly, well, maybe then people will start to pursue it which is maybe also what kind of happened, uh, but this tendency to basically shut up about it and don't talk about how bad things will go uh, also meant that it took a long time for the public to notice that this stuff is actually very dangerous. Yeah, yeah, there's this really odd, like, concern about doing things like protests and like public advocacy and like awareness and stuff, which like I really don't understand. It's almost like as if people think that the 
topic is so like nuanced and complicated that like normal quote unquote normal people are like never going to understand it and they're never going to be able to like contribute yeah, yeah. in a constructive way so we just like shouldn't tell them about it <laughs> and just kind of like try and sort the whole thing out behind the scenes um which i think is like weird and like quite kind of condescending like as as yeah. one of those like normal people who like doesn't have a tech background um I still feel like I have a right to be included in the in the like conversation around something that is potentially going to impact me and like everyone I know. So absolutely, um, we all have rights like, a little bit strange. Be talking about this and be informed about what is going on. I also think it's it's pretty arrogant to think that normal people won't get us. Uh, and as polls and surveys have been showing quite consistently in the past year, is that people are in fact worried about AI and many people do want to pause. So it's the, the problem isn't that the population isn't concerned, right? That's not the problem because mm. like 70% of the people already want AI to be slowed down. Only 8% want it to be, uh, be sped up. You know, there's multiple polls showing this, so it's quite consistent. Um, the problem is that our intellectual political elites think that it is impossible and it's huge taboo. And I think one of the reasons why people think this way, like why political elites think this way, is because of lobbying efforts. Because like mm. these AI companies, Microsoft, they're spending tens of millions of dollars constantly talking to politicians. So I had a bunch of meetings with politicians, not that many, right? I'm like, I'm like just a volunteer, I'm just a regular guy doing this. So I can't do this stuff, you know, full time and be a professional lobbyist. But uh, the professional lobbyists of these AI companies are talking a lot to politicians. So I had like this meeting with a parliament member last week uh, and he basically said to me, well, um, it's such a relief to not be talking to someone from big tech. That's <laughs> to me, like that, that explains so much, right? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's kind of incredible. I, I, yeah, I feel like it's, um, like, yeah, a lot of the time when you suggest the idea that we should have a pause, people's reaction to that is like, oh, that's like super naive. Like you don't understand, like it's impossible for all of these reasons, but then the reasons are always like, they're like so ideological, like the idea that like, say, AGI is inevitable. Like, why do we think that? Or like, <laughs> you know, I, I don't know, like, just because it's it's crazy. And it's just like, everyone's just kind of accepted it. And I like, can't really figure out why. Um, yeah, I it's very fatalistic. Maybe it's a coping mechanism, right? <laughs> like, if you think that uh, pausing is impossible, that could be like, in a way, it's comforting, because it always also means that you don't have to do anything, right? I mean, giving up, sticking your head in the sand and, you know, there's basically two coping mechanisms that I see a lot. One of them is denial, like sticking your head in the sand and you just ignore the problem. You're like, okay, I'm not going to think about this. I'm not going to talk about this. It's just not real, right? People who say, oh, it's all science fiction. It's not going to happen. We'll, we'll be fine. You know, that's kind of like denial. Then there's this other coping mechanism, which is like defeatism, right? It is giving up. You're not even trying to solve it. And the problem with defeatism is that it is very comfortable. It's very, it feels good because you don't have to actually do something, right? You, you can feel like, oh, okay, we're fucked. We don't have to do anything. So, you know, one of the first things that really got me in action was that I reached out to like the three smartest people that I know. Uh, you know, one guy is like quantum programmer guy. Uh, one person who is working on um, building his own operating system and another person who is like a Google AI engineer. And basically most of them were saying that AI is very dangerous and this could kill us all, but also that they felt like there's nothing you could do to stop it. 
that to me was very scary, this idea that, you know, people who are in fact concerned that understand the problem kind of like give up and don't try to do something. For me, that's like an extra reason. So, okay, I, you know, I got to do something. And it actually seems pretty achievable. Uh, maybe I'm too optimistic, but I honestly believe that there's a pretty large chance that we are going to pause because people are worried. There is a broad, you know, support for pausing AI development. And it's like not the first time that internationally a technology has been banned, right? We've also banned stuff like uh, uh, blinding laser weapons. Um, nuclear weapons are regulated to a pretty high extent. I think with AI, the, the, the technology itself is so incredibly complicated. It's not as if, you know, GPUs magically cluster themselves somewhere uh, and anybody can just make it. No, you know, you, you, you need um, very specific chips. You need billions of... Uh, or like millions of dollars, uh, you need a lot of data. It's, like, it's a lot of effort. It's a lot of engineering effort. It's very difficult to build a super intelligence. Nobody has ever managed to achieve it. So preventing that from happening in many ways is not that hard. The big issue is, of course, that you can make so much money by getting there. It's like it's spitting out gold until it's kill it kills us all, right? Mm. Yeah, I'm wondering like whether this is like to an extent uh, like a language thing, because I was, I was listening to... You, you probably know who Ian Bremmer is. He's like quite a um, famous, like he's like a political scientist. Um, I think at the moment he's doing quite a lot of work with Mustafa Suleiman on like AI policy stuff. And they've like co-written some articles about it. Um, and he, I listened to a podcast interview with him the other day. I wish I could remember what podcast it was. If I can, if I remember, I'll, I'll link it. Um, but he was talking about like how he's been, you know, in the room where it happens with all of these like high ranking officials from all of these countries all around the world. And he was saying like, you don't understand how far outside of the Overton window the pause thing is. He was like, it's just not like, it's not even on the table. No one's discussing it. It's just, everyone thinks it's totally unrealistic. And he's like, trust me, I've talked to all the people who know all the people, you know, which I believe because, you know, he's like a pretty, yeah, like I said, he's a pretty well-connected guy. Um, but then interestingly, later in the episode, the interviewer was like, well, what about this like com compute cap idea? You know, like we we just say no one can go beyond 10 to the 26 flop or whatever. Um, and he was like, oh, well, you know, like I'm not a tech guy, but like, you know, maybe that's feasible. I don't know. Like I'd have to look into it. And the interviewer was saying, yeah, because, you know, compute is like traceable and like, you know, for all of these reasons, <laughs> it might be something that you can govern, blah, blah, blah. And I was thinking, like, I think that's interesting because, like, the, just the word, the idea of pausing, he was out of hand, like, absolutely not, not going to happen. But the idea of a compute cap, he was like, oh, I don't know, maybe. But, like, if you think about it, like, in practice, those two things could end up kind of being the same. Like, if you have a cap and we can't go beyond that, then we might end up having to pause capabilities at a certain level. So, like, sometimes I think, like, I think the pause thing is, like, really clear and useful to cohere around and like seems like a like a goal that everyone can understand what we mean when we say it um but sometimes people who are like more kind of like in the politics scene who have already written that off in their heads they can be kind of like approached from another angle and you can sell them more easily on other stuff um it's kind of the impression i was getting from this but i don't know what you think about that oh that's really interesting that just you know changing basically the the, the the way you phrase it, that it changes people's opinions. So I think there is an, a large issue that people, when they hear the word pause, they have like their own way of, you know, thinking about what, what, what that means. I think some people, when they hear the word pause AI, they think 
we're just going to stop using AI altogether, right? Like everybody stops using AI. That's, that's obviously not what we're asking for. Indeed, we're asking for a compute cap. We're asking for proof of safety. We're asking for democratic control. Um, and the second issue is that the FLI pause letter had a bunch of specific asks, which people were critical of that we as pause AI don't even ask, right? So FLI's pause letter was basically saying, we need to halt AI development above this compute threshold, right? Which is pretty similar to what pause AI is asking, but they were also saying, this is a voluntary commitment from AI companies to do this for six months, right? So it's voluntary mm -hmm. and it's temporary. And what Pause AI is asking for, what we are asking for, is something that is not voluntary, that's being enforced, and not on a national level, but on an international level through a treaty. So like the whole world can pause. Um, and yeah, it, it can't be voluntary. It needs to be, needs to be international. And we don't unpause unless there is proof of safety. So the only way you can build an AI larger than 10 to the 25 flops is if you can prove it's safe before you actually start training it. And that requires a new paradigm. That's like a new way of building AI because the way we're currently like training these digital brains, it's just, you know, you, you, you create this digital brain and nobody has any idea of how it's going to act, right? It's like, we're still discovering new capabilities. I mean, uh, last week there was this paper showing a GPT-4 in a specific, you know, agentic runtime set, uh, setting can um, autom automatically or look, uh, autonomously hack websites. And it was pretty good at this, like doing SQL injections and all this, you know, tech stuff. But it, this it was a capability that wasn't known before. And the GPT-4 model finished training like 18 months ago, right? So it's like, yeah. this is an example of all these capabilities that we keep discovering so long after these models are trained. Nobody has any idea what's going on inside them. Uh, this whole paradigm is just dangerous. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Do you think like the the pause letter is kind of interesting because it does seem like the people that signed it or like most of them were like never expecting to get what they were asking for. And also like a lot of what they were asking for obviously would be like totally insufficient. Like, yeah, one, like the idea that it's voluntary and that like arbitrary six month cutoff, which is like, I think a lot of people came out and rightly said, like, that seems kind of meaningless. Like, why six months? What are we going to do in six months? What happens yeah, yeah. at the end of that period? Whatever. Like, do you think that in retrospect, that letter had like, because it did bring a lot of awareness to the problem. So do you think it had like a net positive impact? Or do you wish that they'd done it differently? Well, it's very hard to say. Like, I'm also like, a, you know, I'm also very uncertain about things. Um, I'm very grateful that the letter happened. I'm very glad it happened. Like there's a reason Pause AI is called Pause AI because I, I, I support pausing AI. And I think the letter did so much to get that conversation right going. Um, I do think some details, I would have changed some details. So I would have indeed like skipped over the six month thing. And I would have mentioned, you know, international regulation because you cannot expect any company to voluntarily pause. Like it's just, it's just not gonna happen. Everybody understands this, I think. Um, but I think that the, the letter definitely was not good. The reason why I think some of these things were phrased this way, like voluntary, right? And six months is to get more signatures because, you know, asking for an international treaty and a ban on AGI above a certain threshold, it's going to raise way more eyebrows. And I think less people would sign it. So I think FLI, uh, you know, was, was kind of like asking people, Hey, what do you think about this? Can we make it more extreme? And they, they you know, they, they made a balanced call there, I think. Yeah. But I'm not yeah, sure, right? No, I, I wasn't involved I, I think, in that process. Yeah, no, no, I know. I'm just kind of wondering. Um, I think the Center for AI Safety statement that was like a few months after that, that one I really like. It's like my 
favorite one to send to people if I'm trying to prove, if I'm trying to like demonstrate the level of concern amongst people who are like in the know or whatever, that it's a really yeah. useful one to just send and be like, look at all the names on this letter. And it's like a really simple, like one line um, statement. I mean, I guess that also has flaws in that, like there's a lot of different ways to, like it's quite a wide umbrella of positions that you could get under that statement. Like just saying that mitigating the risk of extinction should be a priority doesn't really call for any specific action but i think it's like useful for showing people like that this is like a like legitimate concern that like a lot of a lot of knowledgeable people have um yeah it's very useful there was also this this other yeah. survey that's now my favorite uh the ai impact survey of last year like there was another ai impact survey uh, the year before that and that's basically asking a lot of publishing ai researchers what their pdoom is what their timelines are stuff like that and that is showing that the average P-Doom, right? The chance that AI is going to lead to human extinction is like between 14 and 19%. That's the average, right? I, I, I'm Not many people are sharing this number for some reason. And I, I find it kind of crazy. Everybody's using like the median number, I've... which is 5%. Is there, I don't know if I've seen this one. Because I, I remember the one that was like, it must have been the 2022 one that got quoted a lot in the media because it was something like, the stat that was always getting floated around was something like half of researchers put the risk at at least 10% or something yeah. like that. So was that the 2022 one? Has there been Yeah, that's the 2022 one. one. In 2023. And 2023 yeah, one had like a, a little increase on average on how likely people think X risk is. Yeah, okay. I'll have to look at that. Yeah. But what's like even worse is that there's like so many other th ways in which AI can go wrong, which is not extinction. So I think if you ask mm. people like, you know, what other types of scenarios are there and how likely do we find them that the numbers are becoming even way, way, way worse, right? Yeah. So you start looking at cybersecurity risks, biohazard risks, uh, you know, a, a takeover risks by a human where like some human or some organization ends up on top and controlling the world, basically, right? That These are also very bad scenarios, but people don't go extinct. So it's not technically an X risk. Yeah, yeah. No, that's true. Yeah, once once you start adding together all of the various ways in which things could be super, super bad, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. then you're getting some comfortably high numbers for sure. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting that like, sometimes I think different people have like different thresholds for being really concerned. Like some people you can be like, oh, you know, people think there's a 5% chance and like a 5% chance is like already enough to warrant like a lot of attention. Um, but then like others, you know, you'll have to tell them it's like 50 or like <laughs> then there are people that think it's like 90 or whatever. And it's kind of like, yeah, I don't really know because there's such a like diversity of opinion about probabilities, like, and it's really, really difficult to have any certainty about them. Um, I never really know whether to use them when I'm trying to persuade people to pay attention because it's kind of mm -hmm. like, well, which one, like whose number should I go with? Like there are so many to choose from and in my mind, like anything above zero is worth paying attention. But like, Absolutely. even for me, I'm like, well, I mean, I wouldn't, I wouldn't go out. Like if I thought the risk was say like one to 5%, I wouldn't really go out of my way to do anything about it. I would probably wouldn't be tweeting about it. I probably wouldn't be thinking about it all the time. Like that wouldn't, it wouldn't move me. Do you know what I mean? Um, it's only because mm -hmm. it seems to be potentially so much higher than that, that I spend so much time thinking about it. Um, so yeah, I don't know. It's, it's it's such a hard one because there's nowhere to pin. Like it's just not. Yeah, there's just so little consensus that I don't really know yeah, how to pitch it to people. 
Do you know what I mean? I have the same like issue. Yeah, it, it's it's pretty difficult because um, like rationally, if you ask people, hey, uh, would you enter a plane if there's like one percent chance that it will crash? People people will be like, uh, no, like one percent of chance of death is pretty pretty horrible. Uh, people are go all out their way to like evade surgery that has a one percent chance of like an accident or whatever, right? So. I'm pretty sure that rationally people wouldn't do this. Um, and I think if the number gets, I mean, rationally people would be very concerned and do stuff, but emotionally it just doesn't happen. So I think emotionally you need to have a way larger odd that, that things will go wrong. I think you really need to envision the future going wrong, maybe by default, right? It's like, it's a large probability, the largest probability is that things go wrong. And then you start to worry and then you start to feel like, okay, we need to do something. If it becomes like the image of how you look at the future. And if I think at the of the future right now, I can see like a lot of scenarios that go wrong. I can see some scenarios where things go right, uh, but like emotionally, it starts it starts looking. I, I basically start looking at the negative stuff, and I think that's partly what got me in action. And I think in, yeah. in terms of probability, I think that I have a forty percent chance of doom. Maybe that's still you know largely optimistic. But if I'm really honest, maybe the sixty percent of things going right is me trying to have like hope. Uh, but the rational yeah. arguments aren't really there. Like the rational arguments definitely point to uh, higher numbers of things going wrong. Yeah, that's interesting. 40 is pretty, I mean, that's less than 50. I'll take that. <laughs> well, how about yours? Um, what do you think about, uh, if, if you'd like oh, intuitively people, have a number for this? Yeah, people have asked me this before and I always like shy away from answering it because like I worry about, like for me, because I like don't have um, technical knowledge, like I worry about people like me, like kind of coming up with numbers and like I feel like say if I was say if I just was like oh mine's thirty five or whatever, I feel like there's something about doing that because I don't have that tech background, which is like just sort of like worsening the credibility of the entire thing. Do you know what I mean? It's just like it's just like making everyone's epistemics a little bit worse if anyone can just start putting numbers on things. Mm. Um, That's actually a good like point. I don't know. I like I don't what. What I mean is like I don't I don't feel like qualified to say like I don't know how I would model it like I don't know how I would come up with this number like my concern just originates from observing that people who I perceive as more knowledgeable than me are worried if that makes sense and I don't really that feel makes the need so much to... sense right yeah <laughs> it's like, it's kind of like it's kind of like I I I think I've used this metaphor before but it's kind of like seeing like a bunch of different different doctors and like i have some condition and they're all giving me like different like survival rates or like different prognoses for my condition and like because i'm not a doctor i couldn't personally come up with a number but like you know i can still decide what to do or like decide what treatment avenues to pursue or whatever based on being given those numbers by different like professionals if that kind of makes sense yeah um, yeah intuitively it does yes I think maybe the, the the numbers thing is is can also be very uh it makes it way more abstract right thinking about these numbers it makes it like very rational and it makes it play out in this like rational part of your brain um and maybe sometimes we we, we shouldn't do that because it creates like this disconnect i also think that the, the way many people are talking about x risk including myself by the way by the way is uh doesn't match like the tone doesn't match the the the, the message, right? Um, like I'm 
sitting here talking with you and I have a smile on my face maybe 70% of the time, even when I'm talking about, you know, 40% chance that we're all going to die. I think people pick up on this and thereby maybe not really believe it, right? Like there's this mismatch. Why are you, why are you laughing? Why are you happy about, uh, you know, when you, how can you be happy when this stuff is going on? Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. But then, then there's also a risk doing it in the other direction. Because if you come across like super emotional, like super impassioned, whatever, people are like, oh my God, like these people are hysterical. They're crazy. They're paranoid. Do you know what I mean? Like it's kind of mm -hmm. a lose-lose thing. Like I also don't really know what the best way to, and I also don't know if it's like productive to try and scare people. Like, I'm not really sure about that either. Like I, I do want to motivate action, but like sometimes people being anxious like doesn't really motivate action it just kind of gets people to like you said before do the like denial thing yeah or they just like panic they don't know what to do themselves and like they, they yeah they just try to to ignore ignore it so um i i really don't have an answer for that <laughs> yeah i, <laughs> I, really I share that doubt like, i think it's very difficult like uh emotionally i would never want to scare anyone um it, it's it sucks right being scared is, is not fun i don't want people to be scared but on the other hand, maybe it's required for action, right? Maybe people need to be a little scared. Um, I don't think people should be, you know, scared into paralysis that they stop doing anything and feel feel powerless. And maybe that is the response, right? If you if you tell people how bad things really are, that's how they can respond. So, I, I have a I have a niece like 25 years old, um, and I spoke with her, uh, you know, a year ago. Uh, and she was just asking like how, how, how I've been doing. And I've been, I, I told her basically, yeah, I'm, I'm pretty worried about AI. She said, well, why, why are you worried? I basically explained to her uh, what, what I'm afraid is that could happen, right? What I'm afraid of. And she just got a panic attack. Uh, like that, oh my that, was my, that was my impact of, 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 of talking with her. And I felt, I felt horrible about this, right? I, I don't want to scare her, but I also don't want to lie to her. And the truth is, is that... I think the future is scary. Like the, the future yeah. well, it isn't scary. It, it could be very scary. And it's something that we, you know, maybe, maybe should internalize. So, so one thing that I do want to do is scare politicians. I really want political people in power to be scared. So ideally, like only a small group of people in charge will feel like, oh my God, this thing is horrible. Uh, we need to act right now, right? They get into action, they internalize the risk. They, you know, have this emotional understanding that they could die and the world is in their hands. This is like a huge responsibility, but they should feel this. Um, and that the rest of the world would just go on, live, live their day. So ideally, possibly I wouldn't do a protest, but just speak with politicians and just get them to be convinced because that way, you know, you'd have to, you, you, you wouldn't have to make people scared. Yeah, I agree. I, I was also thinking that, like, I have no objection. Most people, I don't want to scare them, but if they're a politician, I don't feel so bad. <laughs> I'm like, no objection to scaring the shit out of politicians. I think that's fine, actually. Um, but like like you said, it's difficult, isn't it? Because they're motivated by public opinion. They don't care about things unless their voters care about them. Well, like, it's hard to get them to care about things unless people care about them. So, again, it's kind of a, yeah, it's a bit of a catch-22. Yeah, there's um, like these selection effects for people to get into politics. I mean, to get into politics, you kind of need to distance yourself emotionally from things. And you need to be very vocal about things that you don't really care that much about, right? Oftentimes, mm -hmm. politicians are just very good at uh, uh, also making a point for something they don't necessarily agree with. 
So you end up with people in power that have, you know, certain personality traits and characteristics that make them more immune to being scared uh, and, you know, yeah. internalizing stuff like this. So, yeah, that, that makes the game a little bit more difficult to play. It's definitely not all politicians, right? But, like, there is a selection effect. Yeah. So what do you... So just, like, looking back on, like, the last year, like, I guess there's... There have been, like, some some positive things that have happened. Like, in 2023, quite a lot happened. I guess this kind of, like, went... I don't want to say completely mainstream, but, more, like, a lot more mainstream than it was before. Um, and we had the AI Safety Summit, and there was that um, executive order in the US as well, which was pretty interesting. Um, so, like, how do you... Like, how encouraged are you by those events or like or like specifically actually the summit i'm curious because it's encouraging that the bletchley declaration came out of that but not that encouraging that no like concrete policy proposals came out of it so like yeah how do you kind of feel now that you've seen all of that happen oh wow like so much has happened in the last year indeed like when we started protesting uh open ai didn't even acknowledge existential risk right it was just not a topic mm -hmm. um and you know now we've got country leaders acknowledging the risks and there's policy being drafted and there's, there's a, there was a summit organized. So from day one, we've been begging for a summit, right? We've been protesting, like explicitly asking for a summit. And then when Rishi Sunak stood up and said, yeah, the UK is going to host a summit about AI safety. I was so stoked. I was so happy that this was happening. This was like the thing, you know, I've been basically working full time towards to, trying to trying to get that to happen. And the fact that, you know, I don't think it had anything to do with my efforts or whatever, but it's very great that Rishish Nuk stood up. But the summit itself, as you said, like it didn't lead to anything. The UK didn't feel comfortable actually proposing policy measures. They didn't feel comfortable starting an international organization, right? Like an IAEA for AI. It doesn't roll off the tongue, but, you know, some sort of international organization that could, you know, prevents bad stuff from happening. Um, so I felt like UK totally dropped the ball on this and I, I'm kind of mad about that. I feel like they have this huge responsibility to make things go well. And right now all they did was like organize the summit and then basically push it to, to the next one. And now it's, you know, Seoul is organizing an AI safety summit, but it's supposed to be this mini virtual summit in May. So I don't have a lot of hopes that this could be big and lead to, to good outcomes. Um, so I'm really, really disappointed that there is no political leader internationally right now standing up and saying, okay, I have this draft treaty proposal. I want signatures for it. Let's tame this beast, right? Where are the adults? It's just so frustrating. So I think yeah, like this I'm is up to us. Yeah, I, I think I might have seen this because you posted it in the Discord server the other day, but it was that um, House of Lords report on like AI risk. Do you know the one I'm talking about? And there was yeah, like yeah. a... There's like a section on existential risk in there and it, they had like these <laughs> what, what did they say it was something like they thought the risks were like basically certain not to arise in the next three years and like highly unlikely to arise in the next 10 years or something and i was so like if they're working on that basis then it, it kind of makes sense that they're not like you know doing anything that draconian at this point in time but i was just a bit like where are you getting these numbers from? Like, they're so yeah. specific. And I'm kind of like, how, like, why are you sure? And like, who's, like, I just want to know, like, where, where do they get that information from? Because like, if I found out that there's like a, some experts that they're talking to are like very credible that have like, 
convince them of this like maybe that would be kind of reassuring and I'd be like okay maybe you have a good reason to think that but like I just don't see like those experts anywhere and I don't see those figures anywhere else so like I just think that's very weird um, it is very <laughs> weird like it, it doesn't match at all what the surveys are showing you know what the average estimates are what is really clear is that people just don't know it is very very uncertain uh, and I think if we look at AI progress in the last year and we look at what state-of-the-art models can do right now, people already should be pretty concerned. Like if, if we were to like design thresholds or like limits from, okay, if AI does this, then maybe we should be concerned. I think we've hit most of the limits that people can come up with. Can it deceive humans? Yes, GPT-4 can deceive humans. Can it find security vulnerabilities in code bases? Yes, it can find security vulnerabilities in code bases. Can it write software on its own? Yes, it can write software on its own. Can it be, you know, um, can, can, can it outperform humans in many domains? Yes, it can outperform humans in, in, in a lot of domains. I think if we're looking at current models, it were already quite close to, to levels that could be very dangerous. Uh, I feel like we should err on the side of caution and especially politicians. They're like not, they're playing with every single person's life on earth. I think the reason why they're saying that it can't happen in the next five years. There's like 100% certain we can, that it can't happen in the next five years. The reason they're saying that stems from some sort of like psychological need not to feel the responsibility that the whole world is in their hands. Because if you feel that, it's tough. And in a way, that's because I feel that every fucking day and I want to stick my head in the sand, right? It's just so horrendous to think about that if you fuck up, right? If I say the wrong thing to a politician, if I make the wrong impression on a podcast or whatever, I could contribute to there not being a solution to this problem. And just that weight on your shoulders is horrible. So I think the, the human brain just wants to believe that uh, it's, it's going to be fine. So that if you're asking, like, where did you get the information? I'd love to know. But my, my two cents is it's probably also somewhere deep in the brainstem. Yeah. Well, I hope. I, yeah, it's, it's weird because, like, I mean, governments are usually like pretty, like, pretty risk averse in like most situations um and like very concerned with avoiding like very events that have like very low probabilities of happening and like they put a lot of yeah like you know resources into mitigating threats which like doesn't the u.s government have like a file somewhere that has like what they would do in the event of like a zombie <laughs> apocalypse <laughs> or something you know i mean they have like contingency plans for everything <laughs> it's kind of like it's kind uh, of incredible that i would just, doubt like, that though being so obtuse on the sorry <laughs> I, I would certainly doubt it that they have like these plans for all of these scenarios. Um, at, at least that, that's the impression like that I'm getting. Probably, I don't think they're like good plans, but you know, it's kind of funny that they that they have them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, yeah. Yeah. So I, for I don't know with COVID, the, the... with COVID, there was yeah, like this no, no. zero point one increase of uh, mortality, and that was enough reason to just completely shut down the whole country, right? That was like enough reason. Mm -hmm. Oh my goodness, a little bit more people are going to die. Just shut it all down, right? There's this chance. It's, it's so many times other governments are extremely risk averse, but when it comes to this huge, huge, huge issue, I think we are like, we're just not psychologically equipped to deal with the, 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 the uh, urgency of the situation. Like it's exactly as in the movie, don't look up, right? There's this group of scientists saying, hey, maybe the world's going to end. Uh, and it is just people can't hear it. They just can't internalize it. They can't understand that this is actually going on. It's too dark. It's too big. It's too scary, right? Yeah, I agree. 
Um, don't have any solution <laughs> to that. Um, <laughs> I might see if I can like. It might be useful to just try and find out where, like, where this information, well, like, where 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 their certainty is coming from. Like that 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 I don't I don't know too much about like who produces those reports or whatever. But I'd be very interested to know like maybe there's someone that somebody can get in contact with in the UK government to be like, where did you get this three year slash ten year? <laughs> estimate from and like why are you basing your policy off of that when it doesn't really seem to have that much backing um i would just love to know i was gonna ask like what's kind of like next for pause ai like what are your yeah what are your plans going forward <laughs> yeah I, I really want to focus on growing the community and growing the movement so we're working a lot on getting all the new people who join the Discord server or, you know, who join the, uh, the email list to, to reach out to them uh, and get them to help with all sorts of projects. So in the, in the Discord server, there's this project section. And I think right now there's like 30 projects, right? Uh, sending emails to politicians, people making a documentary, people doing podcasts like yourself, right? There's many people who are doing things. Uh, protests is part of all these actions. And I think it's the most visible part of Pause AI, but it's only like one, one small part of this. So what I really want to focus on is just growing the movement, getting more people to take action on their own. And that's, that's what I think is what Pause AI is mostly about. It's about building this community of volunteers who uh, want to prevent this stuff uh, from happening. And, yeah. Um, What's yeah. like um, something that like anyone could do if they wanted to do something and they don't have any knowledge necessarily or any background like that that's a great question like my go-to response to that is sending an email to a politician like this this is such an underappreciated thing to do like it's people don't acknowledge how powerful this is like that i've sent maybe you know 15 emails or something like that and i think in 70 or 80 percent of the cases i got either a, a, a positive reply or like an invitation to you know have a have a meeting um so many politicians are actually very open to learning about this, to hearing your concerns. They, they want to represent the people. And if you just invite them and have a chat with them, you can get them to think about this issue. And uh, the, the problem is that many people don't feel confident enough to, to, to do this, right? They feel like, what, what, I can't say anything about this, right? I'm not an AI expert. I'm not a lobbyist. I never spoke with a politician. Who am I to have a chat with them? But politicians actually often appreciate this, right? They're talking to professional lobbyists so often that they really appreciate it when there's just a normal person talking about their concerns regarding AI. And, and the advantage that we have is that there is so much literature we can point these politicians to, to, to show that it's not just, you know, regular people being worried about AI. It's a lot of scientists who are very, very concerned about this. And politicians should spend more time thinking about the subject. So like, just send them an email. We have, we have like an email builder on pauseai.info uh, and that could help people to, you know, write a, a powerful email with a bunch of useful sources. Um, so, and we'd like to help out in the Discord. So if you just can spend one hour doing this, your impact can be absolutely massive. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, I did try doing this myself and I, but I, you've like reminded me that I should try, try it again. Um, oh, awesome, awesome. Uh, yeah. Okay, cool. Um, great. Well, I don't know if there's anything else like you wanted to cover. I feel like I kind of covered everything that I thought of, but is there anything else that you want to say while, while we're here? <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, I think it's it's important that we uh, remain hopeful of you know the progress that we're seeing in terms of how people are waking up to the risks. Um, one specific thing that I, that made me a little bit more hopeful is in fact the the Sora model, right? You've seen uh, the OpenAI Sora video generating stuff. And I think this is a very big opportunity for people who are listening to this to maybe uh, do a thing. And here's here's a theory of change, right? So the Sora model is basically showing that AI can now generate very convincing videos. And right now, all influencers, all people who are making videos are looking at that content and think, wow, this could affect my job, right? This could affect me a lot. And they start to become worried. At this point, they haven't made that many videos about it. But in the coming weeks, I think there's a lot of them who will, you know, who will start thinking about this and write about this and make videos about this. So what I think we could do is reach out to these influencers uh, and, you know, convince them that there are even more things about AI that they should be concerned about. And I think if people are concerned about one thing in AI, it's easier to get them to be concerned about other things as well. Um, mm -hmm. So yeah. one of the things that I think people could do is, is not even, if you don't want to write to a politician, you could write to influencers and get them to talk on the subject. Yeah, that's a really interesting idea. Yeah, I think there's like a lot of um, potential in getting like, like a, another, another thing is like celebrities who you know, like are going to be the victims of deep fakes and that kind of thing. Like if we could just get someone yeah. like, you know, Taylor Swift, for example, <laughs> which is pretty, pretty ambitious, but you know, like people who like have that kind of like cultural influence, um, who are going to be like some of the first people impacted by these kind of like video generation things, um, just for them to like speak out about it. That would be amazing. Um, I thought it was so funny when oh, like, yeah, that kind of, like so Taylor impactful. Swift fans um the, the, like taylor swift fans and the like ai safety people had that like momentary like little, <laughs> like <laughs> collaboration moment because everybody was mad that taylor swift was getting deep faked i thought that was like amazing i would love more things like that to happen um but yeah, yeah like, awesome. we, we need to okay, build more um, coalitions right many people are worried about AI yeah. for other reasons and we should like make coalitions and find common ground uh not just not just surrounding extras right there's other reasons why we should pause and i think all these reasons um, should be um, should be shown to people, and we need to find other people who agree with us that slowing down is probably the best thing, and not get obsessed yeah. about our own uh, our own risks and worries. I agree. I, another thing that annoys me is the polarization between people who are worried about AI, but just for different reasons, and for some reason those people don't like each other. And I'm kind of like, oh my god, like we all basically want the same thing. Like, yes. why can't we just agree? Oh, we could have like another um, podcast about that. That's like a. Oh <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, okay, cool. Um, do you want to let people know? Um, people probably know where they can find you, but just in case they don't, uh, do you want to tell people? Uh, yeah, where they can get in touch. Yeah, pauseai.info and uh, press the join button. And there's a Discord link. And you know, I think I think the Discord is a really really nice place for people to hang out. It's like a I think the largest community of people who are worried about. AI risks. I want to do something about it right now. So uh, yeah, I hope to see you there. Awesome. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Sarah. <laughs>